Hi, it's Kelly from PayBox. Welcome to our first podcast, Breaking Down College Applications. Joining me is Professor Michael Pemsel, who has kindly agreed to take us through the Franscon selection process. Professor Pemsel is president of Franscon and a member of the Training Selection Committee. Welcome, Prof. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, jumping right in, can you take us through the minimum criteria applicants need to be eligible to apply for the Franscog training program? Sure. Applicants must have completed an Australian medical degree or successfully obtained the Australian Medical Council certificate. For the New Zealand application, the applicant must be a graduate of a medical school recognised by the New Zealand Medical Council. The applicant must be an Australian or New Zealand citizen or have been granted permanent residency status. They must have general registration with the Medical Board of Australia or the New Zealand Medical Council. Applicants will not be able to commence training unless they have completed PGY2 or above. Okay, so once you know you're eligible, the next step is to apply, and you first do that by filling out the online application form. Yes, that's right. This is found on the RANSCOG website under training. Applicants first register, then pay a non-refundable application fee of $1,010. This is to meet the true costs of the selection process. Unfortunately, there is no government contribution or other subsidy of the medical colleges. Selection has to pay for itself. Major expenses include at least one full-time college staff member and software for the application process. All fellows and trainees involved in selection give their time at no cost, e.g. attending for the interviews. Following this, you will get access to the online application form, which has four sections that can be completed at your own pace. Okay, so let's talk about the first section, which is the CV. Prof, could you take us through the CV scoring guidelines? Yes, there are six categories that make up the CV score. The first is clinical experience in obstetrics and gynaecology. This only includes experience at PGY1 or later, and it must be in a six-month block, but this may include two rotations of three months or longer. Generally speaking, every six months of ONG experience scores three points up to a maximum of 12, which is equivalent to 24 months. There will be no points awarded for less than six months experience. The experience must also be at least 75% in ONG. For example, a term as a resident on a general oncology unit, even though it may have some gynecological cancers, but clearly only in a minority with a majority of other cancers would not be eligible for scoring. So what if a candidate has a 12-month position in ONG for which they've only completed six months before the close of applications? That isn't a problem. Points will be awarded for experience that would be completed prior to the commencement of training. So in your example, that applicant would get points for all 12 months. Even if an applicant commences an ONG position which starts after the close of applications, they can still be awarded points providing there is documentary evidence of appointment to that position. So, in your experience, is it advisable or inadvisable to apply without at least 18 or 24 months' experience? This, of course, has to be an individual decision. Obviously, there are substantially more points for 24 compared to 12 months. That said, anecdotally, many applicants in the past have been successful with only 12 months, but I don't know of anyone who was successful with only 6 months' ONG experience. From this year onwards, there will presumably be more applicants with 24 months experience, so it may be a bit less likely than previously to be successful with only 12 months ONG experience. Nevertheless, I would still expect many applicants to succeed with 12 months, but the majority of successful applicants will probably have done 18 or more months of ONG. So the second category of CV scoring is academic, for which a total of 10 points can be awarded. Five, 
for the top medical course prize winner or the top ONG prize winner and another five for other evidence of academic excellence at an undergraduate level. That's right. However, these prizes must have been awarded at an Australian or New Zealand university or clinical schools of more than 50 students or overseas student in the TAGES top 200. Examples of academic excellence at an undergraduate level include being on the Dean's List or overall first class honours in their medical degree. So moving on to the third category, which is research. Applicants can achieve a maximum of three points in this section. However, they must be first author and, in the case of an article, it must have been published within the last five years. Yes, that's right. So to elaborate further with regards to publications, they must be published or in press by the time of application. The journal must be listed on PubMed or Medline. Each article attracts one point to a maximum of two. Regarding presentations, these can take the form of posters, a rapid communication or an oral presentation. They must have been presented at an annual scientific meeting or the equivalent and there must have been a competitive selection process. Hospital meetings or presentation evenings are not included. Presentations score 0.5 points each up to a maximum of two points for the research section. These presentations must also be different to those that have been published. You cannot score points for a presentation and a publication on the same subject. So why are there only two points allocated for research publications and presentations when, in comparison, three points are awarded for six months of ONG experience? There is a general reluctance to award too many points for research publications and presentations. There is no evidence that those who have done the most research will make the best clinicians. Many applicants will be successful with no research points at all. Research is just one of many areas that can help with an application. If a large number of points were to be allocated to research, applicants desperate for research points would be at the mercy of the academic departments who may use applicants for relatively menial research tasks, distracting applicants from more important activities such as pre-vocational study and clinical work. This is the observation from our own past experience and may still occur in some of the other colleges. Far better to have research done by those enthusiastic about research rather than those desperate for selection points. The second reason against increasing points for research is that research points are likely to disadvantage those applicants applying from locations without academic departments, particularly outer urban and rural departments. So could you elaborate on why points are only given to first authors? First authorship acknowledges those that have been primary in a research endeavour. Where some academic departments may have previously gifted second or third authorship to their favourite applicants, they are much less likely to gift first authorship. And why the five-year limit for articles? The intention is not to disadvantage those applicants from the remaining undergraduate medical programs relative to those from graduate medical programs. The latter may have publications in relation to their undergraduate degrees. There's also a non-tier approach for research points. That is, that poster presentations get the same number for oral presentations. Could you explain why that is? Yes, there is almost unlimited tiering possible with all this. Relevance to ONG, quality of journal, level of support and so on. There needs to be a balance between simplicity and complexity. The difference between a poster and an oral presentation is often related to the contemporary interest of the research topic and not necessarily the quality of the research or the quantity of the work. And finally, does the research have to be specific to ONG? 
The guidelines specify articles must have been published in PubMed or Medline journals but are not currently explicit on content. Thanks for explaining that. Of course, the other way to get three points right off the bat in the research section is to have completed a PhD from an Australian or New Zealand university or one in the THES top 200 universities. Yes, but mostly only one or two applicants out of more than 200 have a PhD. In some years, there are none. Applicants, of course, should not feel disadvantaged by not having a PhD. So moving on to section four of the CV scoring guidelines, professional development, where up to one point can be awarded for each of up to three courses. Each course must be of at least one day's duration. Yes, that's right for the Australian cycle. These courses have to be completed by the close of application and they must be relevant to ONG. Also in prompt are specifically mentioned as examples. New Zealand candidates can use their New Zealand Diploma of ONG qualification to get a further three points. However, no points will be awarded for the CWH or Dranscog in the Australian selection. Of some interest to future applicants is that the college is developing a pre-vocational education program intended for those with a planned career in women's health. It is likely that completion of this program will attract some points in future applications. Applicants for 2019 and beyond should make themselves familiar with all information available on the Franzcog selection webpages. It is likely to include reference to the intended pre-vocational program. Right, so for those listening out there, a handy way of finding out these courses is by heading to the Ranscog events page, which lists quite a few of them. Moving on to rurality and Indigenous origin. With regard to rurality, candidates can score points for being a resident for a minimum of three years since the start of high school at an approved Australian or New Zealand rural location. Scoring guidelines found on the Ranscog website as the RA classification earning points may change in the future. In New Zealand, an approved regional remote area is defined as any part of New Zealand that does not fall under the local authority boundaries of specific city councils, and these are listed in the CV scoring guidelines. To search for your Australian RA classification, go to www.drconnect.gov.au and click search the map. Another way of receiving these five points is by spending a minimum of two years as a GP in a single approved rural or regional location. Correct. Also, a non-bonded trainee who has spent one year or more as a full-time student in a rural clinical rotation can get two points. It's important to note that this is not two extra points as this subsection attracts a maximum of five points. And Indigenous candidates? Those who identify as or are descendants from Australian Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Maori or Pacific populations receive ten points. The applicant may be contacted by Ranscog for verification. So on to the next section, and probably the one that gives the most angst, the free text. So the free text section allows for candidates to provide the college with information not previously covered in the last five sections of the CV. My own experience is that most applicants receive similar scores in this section. So being a low discriminator, it should not generate too much anxiety. Up to five points may be awarded in three areas not covered elsewhere in the selection process outstanding personal achievements, volunteer work and leadership activities. So what sort of things gets you points in each of the three categories? Well, understandably, very few applicants will have an outstanding personal achievement such as a Rhodes Scholarship. In fact, I know of only one in my 18 years at the college, although there may be another that I don't know about. 
Although it is important to recognise these rare outstanding achievements, given that they are so uncommon, the impact on general selection is negligible. Most Africans have done some volunteer work and this should be listed. Documentary evidence must be provided. Leadership skills are a valuable attribute in a fellow of the college and examples of substantive leadership appointments should be given. So keeping in mind the 300 word limit for this section, how do you advise candidates to go about completing it? That's up to the candidate, but I would suggest using dot points so that each item listed is very clear. More than one assessor scores this section and the score is averaged. So now that we've covered the six sections in CV scoring, could you elaborate on the overall CV score? The total score is simply the summation of all six sections. If there is any contention regarding an aspect of the CV application, the chair of the Ranscog Selection Committee is available for consultation and the chair can refer to the full committee if deemed necessary. So Prof, do you have any final tips for the CV part of the process? The main thing is to ensure every claim made in the CV is backed by documentary evidence. This must be provided in PDF format and it is the responsibility of the applicant to ensure all these attachments are checked and confirmed to be accessible files. Speaking of documentary evidence, would a statutory declaration be sufficient in cases where more direct evidence cannot be found? For example, if someone has volunteered five years ago and there's no longer any evidence to prove they did what they said they did, could they provide the college with a stat deck and expect that to be sufficient? I don't believe the level of evidence is specified in the current application information, but a stat deck seems sensible unless other evidence, such as an academic transcript, is specifically requested. It is important to remind applicants that the college will not tolerate false declarations and a minimum of 5% of applications will be audited. Information found to be misleading will result in immediate disqualification of the application and a lifelong ban from making future applications. Now onto another subject. There are two phases in Franz Cog selection in Australia. Could you please explain why this is? Sure. It's important for the smaller training sites and regions that only those intent on training in those sites are matched to those locations. It is incredibly disruptive if the only trainee in a small site is there reluctantly because he or she would rather be elsewhere. So for Australian applications, if you are successful in phase one for, say, a rural ITP, you are no longer considered eligible for a phase two appointment. This strategy seems to be successful so far in ensuring that applications for these sites are generally keen on training there. Of course, if a phase one applicant is unsuccessful in securing a phase one position, he or she is still eligible for selection to a phase two training location, as long as the applicant has preference to phase two post in their application form. Phase two sites include the great majority of ITPs such as those based in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth and Adelaide. Applicants do not need to submit separate application forms for phases one and two in Australia. Their preference will be indicated in the single online application form. So can an applicant apply in Australia after a New Zealand application? An applicant may apply in both Australia and New Zealand, providing he or she is eligible for both Australia and New Zealand selection. However, if the applicant is successful in New Zealand, the applicant is no longer eligible for Australian selection. Again, this seems to discourage applicants from applying in New Zealand unless this is their preferred location of training. So the next part of the application is the applicant nominated referee reports. 
According to the guidelines, applicants can nominate a maximum of four referees. They should include two who are fellows of RANSCOG or holders of the New Zealand Postgraduate Diploma in Obstetrics and Medical Gynaecology or a combination of both. However, there is a clause stating that should an applicant be unable to cite such practitioners as their referees, it is acceptable to list other consultants who are fellows of other Australian or New Zealand medical colleges with whom they've worked closely. So, Prof, does Ranscock know and take into account who the references are? That is, would a referee who is a fellow as opposed to a consultant be seen in a less favourable light? And similarly, for a non-ONG consultant compared with an ONG consultant. All referees count equally. The score in this section is the simple average of the report scores. And does a referee have to be someone with whom the applicant has worked with clinically? For instance, would a research supervisor suffice? A referee for a clinical position should be someone with whom the applicant has worked. And presumably this is because they are asked a number of questions across three domains, the first of which is clinical expertise and technical skills. Of note, other domains include communication, interactional skills, as well as scholar and teacher. If listeners are interested in further details regarding this, they can be found on the RANSCOG website under selection process. Yes, and referees will be asked to rate the applicant against their peers for these attributes using a three-point scale. So, Prof, could you explain what the college means when it says applicants are advised to use the most appropriate referees possible to support their application? An inappropriate referee might be a senior consultant who barely knows the applicant. Prof, what happens if a referee doesn't fully complete the form? In the event that a referee marks 50% or more of the report as insufficient opportunities to assess, the report becomes invalid and the referee will be either asked to modify the response or opt out. If they opt out, the applicant will be given the opportunity to nominate a replacement referee. However, they will still be bound by the same deadline for completion. Okay, thanks. Um, and regarding some logistics, referees will be contacted automatically when the applicant submits their final application and this will only occur via email. Referees will be given a minimum of one reminder pending the deadline. However, ultimately, it is up to the candidate to ensure they're completed. An electronic report form will then be sent to the referees and can only be completed via the online performer. Hard copies or electronic versions will not be accepted. So on to the next part of the applications, the institutional references, which are currently used in Australia, but not in New Zealand. Firstly, Prof, why have hospital references? Well, understandably, the employing hospitals want some input into the selection process. Since we introduced these references, the hospitals feel much more engaged in the selection of the trainees they are destined to employ. But just as importantly, performance as a pre-vocational trainee is felt to be a strong predictor of performance in training. It would be inappropriate if this information was not reflected somewhere in the selection score. Also, there are many inherent qualities that are valued in a trainee that are best assessed in the workplace. These might include diligence, ability to get on with other healthcare workers, and aptitude for procedural skills. So why ask hospitals to rank applicants rather than say score them out of 10? Well, when asked to score out of 10, most hospitals give all candidates the same maximum score. This defeats the purpose of the reference in the selection process as there is then no discrimination between applicants. 
The hospital is still permitted to rank some or more applicants as equal, but this seems to happen less often if asked to rank than if asked to give a score out of 10. Is it possible for one consultant or senior member of staff to assign the ranking themselves? No. The college sends each hospital a list of all applicants who have spent at least six months at their hospital in the preceding two years. It is a stipulation from the college that the reference must be a broad consultation, including senior trainees, and specifically must not be made by one person alone. Hospitals take this process very seriously as their reference will likely impact on their future trainees and ultimately future consultant workforce. The college states that a candidate can be labelled by the institutional referees as highly recommended or not recommended. What does this mean for them? A notification of highly recommended or not recommended does not count towards the final selection score, but rather serves to inform the colleges as to whether the selection process is identifying those applicants perceived by the hospitals as highly recommended or not recommended. Many highly recommended applicants will not gain enough points for selection, and a very small number of not recommended applicants may gain enough points for selection. It is important that an isolated personality clash does not permanently debar an applicant from selection. So the situational judgment test is a relatively new component of the application process. Could you tell us more about it, Prof? The situational judgment test is designed to assess an individual's judgment regarding hypothetical situations encountered in the workplace. There are two types of questions, either ranking the alternatives or multiple choice. All applicants will be required to sit the SJT and it will count 10% towards the final selection in Australia. SJTs will be trialled in New Zealand for another year and will not contribute to the overall score in New Zealand. So are they ONG specific questions? The question should require only limited knowledge of ONG, typical of most applicants. The next stage of the application process is the interview. What proportion of applicants get an interview? This will vary depending on the total number of applicants, but recent experience is that about two-thirds of all applicants will get an interview. And how is shortlisting for the interview determined? Shortlisting for interview is based on the summation of the CV score and references, both applicant nominated reference and the institutional references. Great. So moving on to the interview itself, candidates will be sent their offer via email. The interview will be offered in the state of their first preference as nominated on the interviewee application form. Applicants have 48 hours to confirm their acceptance of an offer. Ideally, interviews in Australia will take place on the same day and use the same questions. However, this may not always be feasible. The interview panel will consist of five to eight members and may include fellows of the college, trainees, hospital representatives or consumer representatives. The interview will be 15 minutes long and include a number of questions. In the past, this has been about six. It's also worthwhile saying at this point that there are slight differences between the non-provincial ITP posts and the provincial ITP post applicants. So Prof, what information regarding the candidate do the interviewers have? The guidelines state that information contained in the clinical experience section of the applicant's CV form will be made available to panel members. This helps contextualise some of the answers. And how is the overall interview score calculated? Each interview panel member scores the applicant according to a strict scoring guideline for each question. There is also an additional score for the global performance. 
These scores are combined and averaged across the panel members. Interview scores are standardised against the national mean for each panel. How do you suggest candidates prepare for the interview? Practice with colleagues, including supportive consultants and registrars. Be aware of important contemporary issues in women's health. Most importantly, be prepared for a difficult question or two. If you find a question difficult, others will likely have trouble with it too. Don't let what you perceive as a poor performance on one question put you off answering other questions with which you are more comfortable. So, Prof, could you take us through how the overall scoring and ranking is calculated? The CV score, referee scores, interview, institutional references and SJT will be combined to create an overall score and rank. However, each component is weighted differently across Australia and New Zealand. In Australia, the CV score contributes 20%, the applicant selected referee score 10%, the SJTs 10%, institutional references 20%, and the standardised interview score 40%. In contrast, in New Zealand, the CV score is weighted at 40%, the referee report 10%, and the interview 50%. Could you take us through the matching and allocation of national posts? So the allocation to training posts is based on national ranking and preferences. Higher ranked applicants will be prioritised for positions in their state of first preference and lower ranked applicants may be offered positions in the state of their second or subsequent preference. Applicants will receive one offer only and they have 48 hours to accept it. And what is the ratio of applicants who interviewed to those who secure a place? While I cannot be specific, the college offers approximately 80 positions in Australia each year. In New Zealand, there are approximately 20 positions each year. However, this will vary according to other factors such as the commencement of deferred trainees, returns from parental leave and so on. And what about the state-based matching to ITPs? A list of all those who are successful in national selection will be sent to each regional training and accreditation committee. It's important to note that local employment processes may involve further employment-related requirements such as interviews and police checks. In some regions, the successful applicants will be invited to prioritise their choice of ITPs. A matching process then takes place at regional level to try and best match trainees to ITPs. If a candidate receives an offer from a hospital or ITP, they have 48 hours to confirm their acceptance. So does selection for training guarantee a training position? Well, unfortunately not. Applicants should be aware that the college cannot direct any hospital to employ a particular applicant, or indeed any applicants. It is the successful applicant's responsibility to secure a training position. The offer of joining Francoc training will lapse if a training position cannot be secured. Very occasionally, no hospital with a training position will employ a particular selected applicant, and instead employs a non-accredited doctor to the available position. In that event, the offer of a training post lapses. Some regions have specific jurisdictional requirements for employment in that region that must be completed before selection. Failure to complete these may lead to an applicant being ineligible and again the training offer will lapse an offer to the next eligible applicant. It is the applicant's responsibility to ensure they have met all requirements for employment in the jurisdictions in which they have applied. So, in your experience, is it possible to acquire a training position at a hospital you, you have not worked for previously? For instance, if you've only ever worked at a non-tertiary hospital, is it possible and even realistic to expect to be matched to, a, say, a highly sought-after tertiary? 
Most definitely. Many applicants will be matched to hospitals with which they have had no prior experience. Okay, thank you. And uh, could you explain what happens to unsuccessful applicants? Unsuccessful applicants are kept on a merit list, which is used in the event a position becomes available prior to the commencement of the second semester in the year following application. The highest ranked candidate who has not been previously offered a position and who has preferenced that training region where the position is available may be offered the position. Will all outstanding applicants eventually be selected? Unfortunately, the answer is no. Every year, there are many more outstanding applicants than can be accommodated in training. All applicants must accept that it is possible that they will never enter Franscog training, despite a passion for women's health and being eminently suited to becoming an obstetrician and gynaecologist. Training position number is limited by available training. So what should unsuccessful applicants do? Well, not be too alarmed or disheartened. In every application process for every position, extremely good applicants will miss out. That's the reality. It's important to note that wanting the position more than anything in the world may not change the outcome. The selection process strives to point the most suitable applicants while maintaining a high level of fairness and transparency. No selection process achieves perfection, which is by definition unattainable. Thanks, Prof. Some final questions. The first one is, what should an applicant take into consideration when they think about reapplying? Well, a number of things to think of. For example, will my application likely score higher in future? The applicant with relatively little experience, e.g. only 12 months ONG, will immediately gain a further six points with another year of ONG. Some applicants feel they know they let themselves down at the interview. While that could happen again, it might be that an applicant feels it is worth another attempt. Many others are unlikely to increase their score dramatically and come up against yet another cohort of equally outstanding applicants in subsequent years. And this brings me nicely to my next question. In 2016, Ranscog decided to cap the number of applicants to three. The cap was not retrospectively applied to applications made prior to 2016. However, 2018 will mark the first year applicants may reach the maximum number of applications. Prof, could you explain why the cap was brought in? The three application limit is intended to prevent applicants wasting years of their medical careers in non-accredited posts and possibly never getting an ONG training position. In some other disciplines, this means that selection may not occur on average until even PGY6. This would be unacceptable in ONG where a high proportion of trainees take parental leave and undergo fractional training and this means that many trainees are already close to 40 years of age by the time they are attaining FranceCog. In the interest of the trainees, the college is keen to ensure that most trainees are commencing training closer to PGY4 than PGY6. Okay, so what happens if you submit an application and you change your mind for whatever reason or it turns out you've completed it incorrectly? An application is considered official and will count towards the number of attempts made upon successful submission of the RASCOG National Selection Application Form. For the purposes of capping, an application can be withdrawn within 10 days of the closing date without it counting towards the applicant's number of attempts. So once you've capped the number of attempts as an Australian applicant, for instance, could you then apply to New Zealand? Unfortunately not. Applicants in Australia and New Zealand are not seen as independent of each other, so no. 
On to the next question. What are the other career options available if an applicant continues to be unsuccessful? If an applicant's passion is obstetrics, that can be met as a GP obstetrician in the provincial centre where, other than gynaecological major surgery, their practice profile is likely to be very similar to that of a specialist obstetrician. If their primary interest is office gynaecology, they can pursue that interest as a GP with a special interest in women's health or even as a sexual health physician. However, if their primary interest is operative gynaecology, then further attempts at Franz Cog's selection remains the most appropriate path, or perhaps even consider other surgical disciplines. So does the college see itself as having a role in minimising the negative aspects of the selection process? Yes, the college strives to maintain a fair and transparent process while attempting to select the most appropriate applicants, but it also strives to minimise activities that will be completely unproductive for applicants not destined to be selected. For example, as discussed previously, extensive research is unlikely to benefit those not particularly interested in research. The college also tries to position applicants for other careers in women's health, particularly general practice, given that approximately two-thirds of applicants will not be successful in any particular year. And with regards to Australian provincial ITPs, who is eligible to apply for that? These positions will appeal to candidates who are currently based in rural and regional areas, who have worked in these areas recently, or have expressed a desire to pursue a career in rural and regional areas. Candidates must satisfy a minimum of one of the following selection criteria in order to apply for this. These criteria include having lived for at least five years in an approved regional or rural location in Australia or New Zealand since the start of primary school education, being awarded a medical rural bonded scholarship, studied at medical school through the bonded medical places scheme, have worked a minimum of one year as a general practitioner in a single approved regional or rural location in Australia and New Zealand, or finally have undertaken a minimum of 12 months clinical training in an approved regional or rural location either as a medical student, intern, resident or registrar. Fantastic. Well, that brings our podcast to a close. I'd like to thank Professor Permazel for giving up his time to discuss the college applications in such detail and with such candour. Thank you also to Ranscog for their transparency and for sanctioning this podcast. Finally, thanks to Clem Teo for his IT support. PVOGS will endeavour to keep this podcast up to date with any changes that occur to the application process, so look out for these along with future podcasts. And thanks to you from myself and the college for this opportunity to explain some of the selection process. I would urge all current and future applicants to continually update themselves regarding refinements of the application process on the college website. The selection process is so much better than it was, but needs to continually evolve to meet the changing needs of the applicants, the employing hospitals, and most importantly, the women of Australia and New Zealand. Thank you.